Welcome everyone. This is Jeff Cohn with the Wall Street Resource and joining me is Bill Stilley, CEO of Adile Pharmaceuticals. Welcome Bill. Yeah, thank you Jeff. Appreciate you having me on. Great to have you. So so Bill, for those that aren't familiar with Adile, can you give us a quick overview of the company? Sure, Jeff. Adile Pharmaceuticals is focused on medicinal treatments for the treatment or prevention of addiction. And we have a lead drug for alcohol use disorder, which is currently in phase three trials. And we have a pain product in earlier stage development and a number of other products behind that. Okay. Um, you just answered my first question. So, so how big of a market is it? I, I assume it's pretty large. Well, if you talk about addiction in general, I mean, we're talking about a number of different disease states. But with the lead product, AD04, it is focused on alcohol use disorder. Now, it's a, it's a genetically targeted drug to help people reduce or eliminate their drinking. And it works through reduction of craving for the alcohol. When you talk about the size of the market, I mean, this is one of the absolutely largest disease states that exists in the world and in the United States. I mean, it's estimated that over 30 million people in the United States alone have the problem. Uh, if you look at the potential market size, you know, it's a $100 billion potential market. And when you think about, you know, a drug like ours, which would be genetically targeted, it's, you know, a $30 billion plus dollar potential market. And so we think, you know, with a drug like this, you could really have a blockbuster product. Okay. And then what's the current state of care for the indication you're going for? So the standard of care is behavioral therapy, you know, sometimes called talk therapy, uh, either in a group setting or with a, an individual one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, usually it results in a dramatic life makeover. You often have to give up friends, uh, sometimes even disassociate from your own family. And so most people consider the current standards of care to be fairly extreme, uh, again, life makeovers. And on the medicinal side, there are a few products to help, uh, but they're largely limited by some of the side effects that come with them. And so only those that are really willing to put up with those side effects are willing to attempt the drugs in the first place, nevertheless stay on them. Okay. And, and where are you in, in uh, working towards it? You said phase three. Are you, are you at the beginning of that? And how large a study? Yeah, so it's a 290-patient study. We are running it in seven countries. We started uh, last year, and we expect to have data in the first quarter of next year. So we'll be finishing up right around the end of the year, we expect, and, uh, and we'll have data. And you know, that will be a pretty big value inflection point for the company. And, and so what are the endpoints you're going for? So our endpoint is based on what they call a heavy drinking day. So a heavy drinking day is defined as four or more drinks in a day for a woman or five or more drinks in a day for a man. And the data are that almost all damage from alcohol is due to these days. And not that, you know, if you can eliminate drinking, that obviously will stop the damage of alcohol in your life. But the FDA and EMA have both determined that the data support that if you can get people below those drinking levels, that those days are not causing significant harm in their life. So we will be looking to reduce the number, you know, the, the, the number of heavy drinking days that people have relative to the placebo group. Okay, so you're not trying to prevent people from drinking altogether. Is that correct? Well, I would say we're trying to reduce or eliminate people's drinking. So preventing them from drinking is absolutely one way to reduce or eliminate their drinking. But 
people that can go from drinking you know, at what they call binge or heavy drinking levels, which are truly unhealthy days that are causing a lot of harm in their life, down to levels that are not creating those problems, both physically, mentally, you know, socially, that uh, that's also positive. And as I mentioned, the FDA and EMA uh, believe the data support, support that. And so in order to be successful in the trial, you do not have to completely eliminate your drinking, which would be called abstinence. Okay. And so how is this drug taken? So it's an oral drug, uh, currently twice a day. As the company is developing, we plan on developing a once-a-day formulation. We are very confident we can do that, and that's, you know, be part of what they call the life cycle management of the, of the drug and, you know, providing better benefits to patients. And, and how does it work, the, the mechanism of action? So our drug is a selective serotonin-3 blocker. It works through a, a, the molecule dopamine, and it reduces the, you know, based on the data so far, it seems to reduce the craving for the alcohol. So in our phase two study, patients significantly reduced, and that, that's both on the statistical side of what they call a p-value, so significantly reduced both the frequency of their drinking and, and by, that was by almost 50%, and then the quantity they were drinking when they drank by almost 60%. So they picked up the bottle less often, and when they picked it up, they were able to put it back down. Okay, and, and what's the regulatory pathway for this? So currently, we've had our negotiations with the FDA. We, uh, we work with CEDAR, which is the pharma pharmaceutical group, and also with CDRH, which is the device group, because we have what's called a companion diagnostic, and that's a genetic test. So patients will get a genetic test. If they're positive for the test, they would be administered the drug. It would be expected to help them with their drinking. If they do not have the genetics, they would not be administered the drug. And we expect about a third of the people to have the positive genetics. And so we've already had our negotiations with the FDA, uh, worked out the trial design, worked out how to get the approval of both the companion diagnostic and the drug together. And they have currently stated that we will need two phase three trials, and we're currently in our first. So if we're successful there, we would expect another uh, confirmatory uh, trial to be required. I would say we do believe that based on what's happening in the world today that there may even be the opportunity to go for an approval based on one trial, though. And that trial runs how long? So we expect to have data this uh, in Q1 of next year. Okay. And then you mentioned some of your trials are going on in other countries. Are you working on uh, approval in other countries at this time? So our plan is to go for an approval in both the EMA jurisdictions, which is the European Medicines Authority. That's, a, that's the equivalent of the FDA for Europe. So our trials are designed to get us an approval both in Europe and in the United States. Uh, in the United States. And, and by the way, I should mention the name of our trial is the Onward Trial. And so the Onward Trial is being conducted in seven countries, and it's designed to go for uh, to serve as a basis of approval in both the United States and in Europe. Okay. And you do all this work. Are you, are you protected IP-wise? We are. So we have pa- uh, three patent families. Uh, we are covered in over 40 jurisdictions. We expect to have patent protection out to 2032, and we would also expect extensions of those patents, you know, based on the Hacks- Waxman Act, uh, out to 2037. 
And, and so who's going to be the payor? Is this going to be self-pay or is it going to be reimbursable, do you expect? Yeah, we expect this to be reimbursed widely. Both uh, when, when we did some payer research in the United States, 100% of the payers interviewed indicated that they understood and that, that reducing alcohol consumption, particularly reducing heavy drinking days, was a significant uh, benefit to the patients. Also, it reduced costs, and 100% said they would reimburse at premium pricing. We have also seen the same thing. We didn't do a research study in Europe, but we saw that we have seen the same thing in alcohol reduction drugs in Europe. There's a drug called Solincro. It has a number of liabilities, but it had, was uh, shown in phase three to help uh, reduce drinking, and all the jurisdictions gave premium pricing to Solincro also. So we think that will be uh, one of the easier sells that we have to do. So what can you share with us that's given you the most confidence that this drug works? Uh, it's going to, you know, hands down, it's our phase three trial. So, I mean, our phase two trial. So we had a phase 2B trial in 283 patients. And as I mentioned earlier, the result was that patients that were of the correct genotype that were on drug had a significant reduction in both the primary and secondary endpoints of severity of drinking and frequency of drinking. So they drank less often, about 50% less often, almost 50% less often. And when they drank, they drank less, almost 60% less. So patients went on average from nine and a half drinks every time they drank down to four drinks every time they drink. And we had good separation from placebo, the p-value, for those that are aware of the statistics, a p-value of 0.05 or less is considered success. We had a p-value of 0.004. So very strong statistical results in that trial. Any write-ups in, in any major journals yet? Yes, so the, the results were published of the Phase 2B were published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, a very prestigious uh, journal, and uh, we had two different articles written on us there. Nice. Um, did you develop this drug in-house, or, or how did it come about? So the, the, first of all, I'll say the story of it is based around the career of our chief medical officer and the, the, one of the co-founders, and inventor of the drug, Dr. Bancoli Johnson. Uh, by the way, you can look him up. You know, he's a luminary in the field of addiction, in particular alcohol addiction. And early in his career, he came to the recognition that all alcohol patients were not the same. You know, there are patterns of drinking that are different. Some people, they need to drink every single day. Some people, they can go years without drinking. Then they have one drink. Next thing you know, they're on a bender. Maybe it's for a whole night, maybe it's for six months. And so, and, and there's a lot of other patterns of drinking. And, and to treat all these people the same, he determined was not scientifically sound. And he went on a mission. And if you look at some of his work in the 90s, he was trying to segment the population by when they developed their alcohol problem. And they called it early onset alcoholism or late onset alcoholism. You know, if you developed it early, maybe there were certain, you know, genetic factors. If you developed it late, maybe it was due more to just exposure over time. And if you think about it, it's really just a poor man's genetic test because that was the best they had. And then when the genome came unlocked at the turn of the century and, if, and imaging power got better, computing power got better, he went on a mission to determine what was actually happening. And he came upon the, the hypothesis based on some of his animal work and imaging work that certain patients had a defect, defect in their serotonin transporter system 
that would make them susceptible to treatment with a, with a selective serotonin-3 blocker. It was tested in phase two, and it worked. And so he did the de early development and the, the exploratory work while he was in academia, and he was the department chair for three different major universities, the University of Texas, University of Virginia, and then the University of Maryland. So how has COVID uh, affected you guys? Uh, it, it seems people are drinking more at home now. To say people are drinking more at home during COVID is a significant understatement. Uh, it is really sad to say, and you know, of course I'm keeping my finger on the pulse of this, that the drinking levels in the country have just skyrocketed beyond anything you know, that, I, that imaginable if you had asked me previously. Um, it, let's just say if you, went, going, if you went back a year and a half ago and asked me or you know, told me, we are going to shut down the bars and we are going to stop all parties, you know, Bill, what do you think is going to happen to alcohol consumption? And I would have told you, wow, you know, that's going to really harm the alcohol industry. This is going to, you know, in some ways good for, the, good for society, but, you know, drinking levels are going to decrease. And in fact, what has happened is exactly the opposite. And, it, and it's worse than the opposite. Not only have drinking levels increased significantly, but the, the patterns of drinking and the way people are drinking has also become into more harmful drinking, you know, less social, more harm, harmful drinking. And you know, not too many uh, weeks ago, the United Kingdom, their national health system, published some research they, were, they had done, and they said that the number of people drinking at alcoholic levels in, in the UK has increased 75% from what it was pre-COVID. So you, know, you already had a disease that was one of the largest in the world, caused, already caused more than one in 20 cancers, already is, one of the, is the leading cause of death in people in their prime, ages 15 to 49, already caused over 200 diseases and over a quarter trillion dollars of damage in the U.S. economy, just you know, massive impact. And the number of people drinking at those levels just went up potentially 75% according to that study. And it, it's just... Uh, you know, de kind of devastating and it just tells us that we have a, a, it's even more important the mission that we have that we're, we're undertaking here at ADAL than ever at the moment. Okay. And, and this drug, uh, is it a platform where you're going to go after other indications? Yeah, so based on the mechanism of action, we actually think it might work in some other indications. And we've, uh, we've decided the way we're going to develop is spend our resources towards alcohol, but we have filed for some grants to explore in opioid use disorder. And I actually think there's a reasonable chance that it could work in gambling also. Um, and so we are going to explore those, and those would be label expansion opportunities if we ever get, a, you know, assuming we get approved for alcohol. Okay. Uh, do, do you have any partners at this stage? As far as uh, uh, corporate partners, you mean? Yeah. So uh, at the moment, we do not have any corporate partners. Uh, we went public, and we're developing the drug ourselves. And you know, we're actually on, on a mission to build a bigger addiction platform than just ADO4. We did our first acquisition uh, in January, and we are looking to, to continue to expand. And we think that the team we've put together with uh, you know, on my board, I have people that have been in the addiction space. On my management team, I also have, and, and in uh, you know, clinical development, and we are looking to take a number of products that are 
on the market and out there already and get them out to patients in a more effective way to be able to help them better. So, so for your go-to-market strategy, it sounds like that you're going to hire your own sales force. Is that right? So I always build my companies like I'm going to take it to the end. Now, historically, if you look back, we've ended up selling. Uh, I've ended up selling before I've gotten there. But if you build it like you're going to take it, take it all the way, one, it makes it more likely the, pen, the patients are going to get the benefit faster, and it makes it more likely that when you do talk to a potential acquirer that they will be more interested and that there will be more uh, urgency for them to try to do a deal. So I think that's the way to build a company, and that's what we're trying to do. Gotcha. So if we look out over the next 12 months, are there any uh, events or, or milestones to watch for? I think you said there's some data coming um, next year at Q1. Anything else? So I think you know, we are on the move as far as uh, our strategic explorations. We're also uh, looking towards what we can do with the yeah, as I mentioned, as you met, you asked, and I, I mentioned the uh, the explosion of alcohol use in this country. Seeing what can be done to expedite the review of of AD zero four, and then of course we have you know the big milestone occurring in Q one of next year that you just mentioned. Uh, so less than a year, and we'll have data that we you know expect expect and hope to be successful, and and that would allow us to drive forward even more rapidly. Okay. Anything I failed to ask that you want people to know? Well, I think, uh, you know, from, from our perspective, there really hasn't been a lot of focus on the addiction space. This, uh, you know, in the pharmaceutical world, um, we think that it is one of the, and we know that it is a, just a devastating problem uh, across a number of addictions. And we think it's time for somebody to step up, and ADAL is, is doing that. And we're going to try to help those people. Very good. So we wish you the best of luck, and thank you so much uh, for sharing the story. Well, Jeff, thank you also. Take care.